Welcome in to the latest edition of the Delaware Biblecast, a podcast ministry of Delaware Bible Church. I'm your host for today's podcast, Brad Harris. I serve as one of the pastors on staff, and joining me on today's podcast is the senior pastor of Delaware Bible Church, Pastor Scott Titi. Pastor Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, all the way back in July the 7th of 2019, our church started a sermon series uh, on the Gospel of Mark, the first message being that Sunday on the Good News of Mark. And since then, we've been in many different sermon series for a short time, whether it be for a small group, we call them life group campaign, whether it be for holidays or that kind of a thing or a guest speaker coming in. But for the majority of the time, we have spent our time in the book of Mark. And here, Lord willing, in just a couple weeks, we are going to be finishing the Gospel of Mark. So for today's podcast, Pastor Scott is going to be giving us an overview of the Gospel of Mark and what we've learned through that study. So Pastor Scott, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, we are getting ready to land the plane. Uh, You know, this has not taken nearly as long as the Book of Romans took us, but uh, it's been well over a year, and we're getting ready to to land the plane. So, you know, I just thought it would be helpful uh, to kind of recap Mark and, um, you know, put it all in one short, succinct outline for you. So, um, back in seminary, uh, this outline was something that we used. Uh, I, I, I think partially it was given to us as students, and then partially I've uh, refined it a little bit over time. But let me just give you a a breakdown of the Gospel of Mark. Mark basically comes at us in three different major sections. And the first section goes from the first verse all the way to chapter 8, verse 31. So, um, you know, that the first section of Mark asks the question and answers the question, who is Jesus? The next section, which is chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to 1052, uh, asks and answers the question, what did Messiah, what did Jesus come to accomplish? And then the final stage, which is chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book, which we'll call, well, we'll talk about this in a minute, we'll call chapter 16, verse 8, uh, which is what I'm preaching on this Sunday. As, as we sit here recording this, I'm going to preach on that this upcoming Sunday, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Uh, is the completion of Messiah's mission. So, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to accomplish? And the third is the completion of Jesus' mission. So, uh, you know, each one of these sections is interesting. In the first section, which answers the question, who is Jesus? This is where Jesus comes on the scene, and really he's working miracles, and he's healing the sick, and he's uh, teaching in a very authoritative way. People are starting to recognize him as an authoritative teacher, but he's also... The words that he's speaking are being backed up by things that no one else can do, like casting out demons and uh, healing the sick and working miracles. And so it's in this context, in this first section, that Jesus begins to reveal who he is and uh, at the same time starts to call the disciples to himself and begin to teach them, uh, which is very important that they learn who he is, begin to teach them who he is. And there's this really interesting there's this really interesting section beginning beginning in chapter 6 where Jesus, at, almost at the end of chapter 6, verse 31, where Jesus begins to do these parallels. 
and we, we covered this, if you remember in the sermon series, we covered these parallels. Uh, so he feeds 5,000, and then later on in chapter 8, he feeds 4,000. In chapter 6, he walks on water, and in chapter 8, you see Jesus in a boat, so there's a parallel there. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, you see the conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and then that's in parallel with chapter 8, verse, verses 11 through 13, conflict with the Pharisees. And then um, in chapter 7, you see a conversation about bread, and then in chapter 8, you see another conversation about bread. And then in chapter 7, there's healing, and in chapter 8, there's more, he- more healing in parallel. And in, in chapter 7, verse 37, you see confession, and that's in parallel with chapter 8, verse 27 and 30, which is another confession. So these parallels kind of serve, these parallels kind of serve the purpose of um, really, you, you know, it's like anything you try to teach, right? You, you, you teach it one time, and maybe some folks get it, some folks don't, so sometimes you have to repeat yourself again. <laughs> Jesus, our great teacher... He teaches his closest disciples. It's not good enough that, that he fed 5,000. No, he's got to, he, or fed a big multitude. He's got to do it twice, right? It's not, it's not enough that um, you know, he teaches them these things. He's got to do it twice. But then there's this big, humongous turning point in the book, and that's found in chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, when Jesus asks the disciples who, who basically to identify him, right? So he says, you know, who do people say that I am? And they, uh, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Elijah, and some say this, and, so, and, then, and then Jesus turns and says, well, who do you say that I am? This is huge. And that's when Peter makes what we call the good confession, and he says, you are the Christ, meaning you're the Messiah. You're the one that's come, that, that, that has been sent by God to come and rescue us. And that is an absolutely huge moment. And from that moment, there's a big turning point in the gospel because from that moment on, Jesus points the disciples in the direction of Jerusalem. You know, uh, they're up in the north for most of their ministry. They do make a trek down to Jerusalem, but they're up in the north in Galilee for, you know, around the Sea of Galilee for a lot of their ministry work. But then Jesus makes a beeline to to uh, Jerusalem. And not only that, but then he starts this series of three cycles. Okay, so now we're in section two, which is what did, what did Jesus come to accomplish? He, he, makes, he does these three cycles. Again, he repeats them. He, he does something three times. And each cycle, there's a passion prediction. In other words, Jesus predicts that he's going to die and then be raised again. There's, uh, the, the disciples then react to that. So, you know, the first time in the first cycle, in chapter 8, verse 31, he says he's going to die, and, and Peter says, no, we can't do that. And that's where, that's where Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. That was King James. I didn't mean to go all King James on you there, Pastor Brad. But that's what I grew up on. He, you know what I mean. He says, get behind me, Satan. And, uh, and then at, uh, after that, after the passion prediction and the, and the uh, reaction, uh, then he gives them a series of discipleship lessons. So just... You know, cycle one starts in chapter 8, verse 31, goes all the way to 929. He makes his passion prediction. Peter says, no way. He rebukes him. And then he teaches them discipleship lessons, like, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Um, he, he represents discipleship as, as um, you know, 
costing a great deal to the disciple, right? Then in cycle two, he makes his passion prediction. Uh, the disciples at that point are kind of quiet. They're like, well, we don't want to say anything because last time we Peter said something, he got, you know, get behind me, Satan. So they're just kind of quiet and afraid to ask what's going on. And then he gives them, you know, more discipleship lessons about servanthood and humility and marriage and, you know, just coming to God with an empty hand. And then in the third cycle, in 1032 to 1052, he makes his passion prediction. The disciples then begin to understand what's going on, but now they're jockeying for position, like who's going to be the best in the kingdom? And that didn't go over too well with Jesus. And then he teaches them uh, more discipleship lessons, this time about servanthood and more humility, and that the greatest in God's kingdom is the lowly servant, right? And, And that all kind of draws us to the end of the um, second section. You know, what, what did Jesus come to accomplish? And the answer to that question is that Jesus, you know, he, he keeps teaching them that, G, that he came to save them from their sin, but they're still stuck in this, they're still stuck in this paradigm where Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom right then and there, which takes us to our third unit, uh, third section, which is the completion of Messiah's mission that starts in chapter 11, verse 1, and goes all the way to the end of the book, which I'm going to call chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus comes into, the, uh, comes into Jerusalem with his disciples, and he systematically begins to, uh, he systematically begins to reject what's going on there. He rejects Israel's dead religion. That's the whole temple and the fig tree thing. Uh, he he begins to reject uh, Israel's corrupt leadership. Uh, he begin then he systematically takes apart the Pharisees, then the Sadducees, then the scribes, and then he pronounces a final rejection on the religious leadership in Israel at the time. And then he begins. You know, can I just say? I mean, can we just all agree that uh, going into Jerusalem, the theological center of Israel, and publicly speaking against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, you know, and systematically rejecting everything they're doing, that's not a real safe place to be, right? So knowing that, knowing what's coming, um, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his death. And that's from 13.1 to 14.42. He begins to uh, talk about the future, talk about the second coming, um, you know, talking about uh, you know, that's where he um, has the Last Supper. Um, he, he's getting them ready for his his departure. And then from there in chapter 14, verse 43, all the way to the end, you've got the, the crucifixion, the, the sham trials. We just covered those recently, the sham trials that Jesus went through. They couldn't even produce witnesses that agreed, you know, and the standard in Israel was you have to condemn someone to die on two or three witnesses. They couldn't find anybody, so they... They uh, had a sham trial, and they convicted him, took him before Pilate. Uh, Pilate offered him Barabbas. They, they, they didn't want Barabbas. They wanted Jesus crucified, and so they released Barabbas, as was the custom, and crucified Jesus. And then chapter 16, 1 through 8, is the crucifixion. Now, um, so, you know, the, again, the big picture is who is Jesus Jesus is not like anybody else, not like any other teacher we've ever seen. Uh, he worked miracles. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. 
what did he come to accomplish? He came to accomplish the rescue of us, but not from our physical circumstances now. Instead, he came to rescue us from something far, far better than that. He came to rescue us from our sin. And then um, he completed that mission by going to the cross. Now, there is a longer ending to Mark. Uh, so if, if most people look at their Bibles, after chapter 16, verse 8, there's going to be some parenthesis or some sort of indicator that says that many manuscripts do not accept uh, the following verses as, as true biblical verses. And I'm going to spend a whole Sunday in a few weeks talking about the longer ending of Mark and and uh, what we can what we can take from it, and what we, and you know why we probably shouldn't consider it to be part of uh, the canon of Scripture, uh, but we'll get to that. But that is the outline of Mark in a nutshell. This was this is the shortest gospel. It's the gospel for Gentiles. You know, each gospel has its own bent. You know, Ma- Matthew is the gospel for Jewish people. Mark is the gospel for Gentile people, meaning non-Jews. Uh, Luke is the orderly account, and John is. Uh, the outlier in terms of the fact that John is a more theological gospel. It's it's less of a blow-by-blow uh, walkthrough of Jesus' life and more of a theological, you know, uh, it, 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 it talks about the theological underpinnings of why Jesus came. And so some people call it uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the gospel from um, from the ground up, meaning starting with the birth and working all the way to the death uh, and his ascension. But um, others, uh, but John is the gospel from heaven down. You know, it, it starts off a completely different way. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it starts in heaven, and then by the time you get to Mar- uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, then you have the incarnation, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So uh, that's the overall outline of the Gospel of Mark. Um, I think we've learned a lot. I know I've learned a lot uh, working my way through this book, and um, I just pray that it's been edifying to the church and glorifying to God as well. So, Pastor Scott, as you share um, specifically what you've, or as you share with us what you've learned a lot in the study and and those kind of things, one of the things that I look back on that really stuck out to me this time going through it was. as as you shared in the first sermon on Mark, that the favorite word of the book is that of immediately. Right. That it is the action gospel, that there is very, very little uh, slow time in Mark. It's boom, 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 one thing after it another. It moves right along. So are there any other key features or things that really stuck out to you as you spent the majority of your sermon prep over a little bit more than the last year studying this book? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that really stood out to me in my study, this go round is um, really trying to understand the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So, you know, I guess I had never realized this before, but it makes sense now. The Pharisees were kind of akin to or analogous to what we would call today in the church the legalists. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of funny because in the church today, in the church in the United States anyway, today, legalistic churches are very small, they're kind of country churches, and, um, you you know, uh, they're very energetic, but they're also kind of small and out in the country outlying areas. And um, that's kind of what we see in the United States is, you know, if you go back to where I'm from, out in the sticks of Indiana, you know, if you find an independent independent Baptist church, you're probably going to find a church that's pretty rigid, pretty legalistic, 
and uh, the leader is, is very much into control, right? Um, so that really helped me think through the Pharisees' role. The Pharisees had control of the synagogues and the localities, um, but they weren't really the power players in Jerusalem itself. They had more control up in Galilee and in the outlying areas. The Sadducees, on the other hand, the Sadducees, um, you know, I remember Wayne Vanderweer telling me this, and he probably picked it up from somebody, but the, the Sadducees uh, were sad, you see, because, and, and Wayne would always tell me that the Sadducees were sad because they didn't believe in a resurrection. They were much more secular. They didn't believe so much in the supernatural, but they were the class of people that made up the high priests. They were the class of people that had control of the temple in Jerusalem. And so they, uh, this is, this is my, my take based on my study, they were much more akin to what is today, or analogous to what is today, the liberal elite Christians. You know, those that are from the Princeton School of Divinity or the Harvard School of Divinity. I don't know if Harvard has a school of divinity. Princeton does. But the big institutions, the big colleges, the big denominations that have a lot of pull politically, but theologically, they were very wishy-washy and pragmatic. Uh, just, what do we need to do to get this Jesus guy to shut up? You know, we, we don't, we're not really interested in knowing who he is really. We just know he's causing us problems. We want him to go away. So that whole aspect of the study, to me, I found fascinating. I found fascinating to understand a little bit more of the dynamic between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and of course, what brought them together were two things. Their, their co-hatred of the Roman Empire, so they would form the Sanhedrin to make big decisions, and their co-hatred of Jesus mm -hmm. brought them together. And then you've got the scribes in there, too, that knew all the ins and outs of the law and yeah, they how were, all that they worked were more like the. Uh, I would call them more like the conservative Bible scholars. They mm -hmm. they didn't really they weren't political players as much. They just were like you'd almost call them like dispassionate lawyers. They just they mm -hmm. understood the Old Testament law. They were just trying to say it like it was. Right. It's interesting you mentioned that about the Sadducees and that I learned that same the Sadducees were sad you see because they didn't believe in the resurrection and it was either fifth and sixth grade or or junior high mid or uh, Sunday school. Huh. So it's a pretty Yeah, I pretty didn't hear that until one. I was a full-grown adult. And I still remember it now. Yeah. Bible college seminary and that's how I still refer to them. So that helped me to make more sense of what was going on between them. You know, the Pharisees mm -hmm. and Sadducees weren't exactly buddies, but when when something came along like the Roman Empire or Jesus Christ himself, that's what would cause them to unite. So when we study books of the Bible like this, of course, we always have favorite sections or favorite parts that, you know, as we study them, are really applicable to us, really stick out, things that we just really enjoy going through and that we can just spend a lot more time in. Did you have a section like that as you studied and went through this series? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, one of the things that um, I, I, I don't know... I. Probably because of what I just mentioned, uh, section three, you know, chapter 11, one, uh, chapter 11, verse one, uh, all the way through chapter 12 was very fascinating to me. That's where Jesus was condemning the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And uh, it just, again, caused me to reflect a little bit on the church today and the status of it. And, and you know, I, I have this desire. I don't know what, I don't know how to get it done yet, but I have this desire to see the church become more holy and more unified. But the only way we're going to be able to do that is to unite around what God's Word says. And, and the church right now is so fragmented from, like I said, legalism all the way to complete liberalism. 
you know, some churches just will say, will say or do whatever is necessary to get traction in the culture that they will just abandon the Bible whole cloth if need be. And so it's, it's, I have this desire to just see churches that are following the gospel and following God's word to be elevated and churches that aren't just to be done away with. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We're, We're on the same page there. Um, well, they're doing more damage than good. That's they are. They are. Both not, sides, legalistic right. and liberal. Absolutely. So as we think back to, again, I'm pulling from the original message that you shared, kind of an overview of the book of Mark. Remember, you can get that message from July 7, 2019, as well as all messages from Mark, including the last couple as they come out. They are all available on our church website or through our different streaming platforms, YouTube, the Facebook page as well as BoxCast, which you can see on our church website, or Google BoxCast Delaware Bible Church. Uh, with that, I think that it would be good as we just continue to focus on summarizing the book of Mark to look back at your three original application points for the book, because I think they're applicable ones that, hey, are, are good for us as we have our personal time and study of God's Word um, and going through it as well. And your three original points were this. Number one, was to read through the Gospel of Mark in a week. And me personally, I'm a three-chapter-a-guy devotional reading. That's how I like to do it. Oh, I like three, to do about three a day. Three a day. Three a day, normally. Keeps the pastor away, right? So, um, <laughs> I've never heard that one. I just thought of it. So I, uh, that's kind of how I like to do it. And if you were to read just three chapters a day, as I would often do, or as I often do, you can finish the book of Mark in less than a week. Yep, that's right. Um, as well with that, pray for God to work in your life through this study. And then you also shared the resource of the scripture journal that we have encouraged folks to get. And you can purchase those for $5.99 on Amazon. So, you know, if you've maybe come in the church halfway through the study, you just listen to our podcast and you haven't listened to many of the Mark messages, or you just want a refresher on some things, maybe those would be some good applicable things for you as uh, you work through that study and as you continue to study the Bible on your own. Last question I'll have for you for our podcast today, Pastor Scott. We're about to conclude the book of Mark, then we're going into Christmas season. What, from a book of the Bible standpoint, can we expect as we jump into the new year next year? Yeah, so you know that scripture journal that you mentioned? Mm-hmm. I'm two ahead. So, okay. uh, the, so what I mean by that is I've read and been preparing for, in my daily quiet time, two books of the Bible ahead. So the next book of the Bible is uh, the book of Esther, and that's going to be a relatively short study. And by relatively short, I mean 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, I think it'll be about a dozen weeks to get through the book of Esther. And it's fascinating, fascinating stuff, and so applicable to our time, because if you don't remember, uh, Esther, the Jews, were living in Persia, and that, so they were a, a, a Jewish culture living in a foreign, uh, you know, basically a, a culture, of, a, a religious culture living in a foreign land and having to operate within that foreign land and a group of people that weren't too friendly to them. And then after that will be uh, the book of Acts, which is going to be just awesome. Another action book. Yeah. A lot of stuff happening. I mean, and, you know, it's the foundation of the church and it's the missionary work. And I'm hoping that that will inform, edify, and inspire us to gospel work uh, right here in our area. Great. So as we look to 2021, we've got Esther coming up, 
uh, followed by the book of Acts, and I'm sure we'll continue to have shorter um, sermon series, maybe some special guest speakers and things as well to look forward to for that. So thanks again for joining us today, Pastor Scott. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we hope to be able to share another podcast with you again soon. Hope you have a great week. See you.